The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome, everybody. This is um, the Jewish Era, our weekly foray into all topics Jewish and Judaism. Uh, we, Our host is Diane Scalzi from Michigan, and thank you, Diane. And my co-facilitator is Tim Downey from Linwood, Linwood, Washington. I am your facilitator, Lynn Corral. So um, I would like to introduce uh, Tim, Tim Downey to introduce himself. Oh, thanks, Lynn. Um, yeah, I'm Tim Downey. And um, for those of you who are used to be meeting on the call, you are familiar. I'm a, a Jew by uh, choice, um, which means that I um, went through the conversion process years ago. Um, I am um, visually impaired. I have some vision, but not much. Um, and um, I have been a part of this call now for a while, and I really love it. And um, I am, uh, as far as uh, affiliation with Judaism goes, um, I'm a member of a reform temple, um, but I live on the Pacific Northwest and there's not a lot of um, synagogues out here. So um, generally you get a lot of people. Um, oh, there's, uh, there's a lot of people who are members who like are conservative and reconstruction and um, they're just because there's not a lot of choices out here, which, which temple you go to. So um, it's a, it's, it's a, I, th- I like it that way though. Cause I like the exposure to more. So um, that's pretty much um, my story in a nutshell. Thanks Lynn. You bet. No, this is Lynn Corral. And the way that we're going to do this is we're going to trade questions back and forth and we, um, it's a very special program we have today with Rabbi Seth Goldstein. He happens to be my rabbi in Olympia, Washington. So hit it, Tim. All right. Um, so, uh, Rabbi, um, we, we were hoping that you could give us a little introduction about um, what is the Reconstructionist movement. Yeah, sure. Great. Um, the uh, thank you, and it's great to be here. First of all, and thank you, Lynn, for inviting me, and thanks for um, uh, for everyone for hosting me. It's uh, wonderful uh, to be here. As Lynn mentioned, I'm uh, Rabbi Seth Goldstein, and I serve a congregation in Olympia, Washington, which is a um, it's a Reconstructionist synagogue, and I'm a Reconstructionist uh, trained rabbi. Although here in Olympia, we we tend to since we're the only synagogue in in town, we um, in, in addition to Chabad, we, we tried, as, as Tim mentioned, <laughs> fewer uh, options at times. We, we really try to focus on, uh, you know, serving everybody. But we definitely have an orientation um, to Reconstructionism. And, and so Reconstructionism, the Reconstructionist movement, um, was, uh, is, is kind of the smallest and newest uh, movement in the history of uh, American Judaism. It was uh, established... Well, it's based on the writings and teachings of a rabbi, a rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, who um, lived in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, he actually lived for, throughout most of the 20th century, lived into his early hundreds. Um, but he was a, 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 um, an Orthodox trained rabbi who came over, who was actually born in Europe and, and came to the United States as a, as a child. And uh, Orthodox trained rabbi who then... Um, ended up working in the conservative movement for a long time, teaching at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And he, uh, he sort of developed over the course of his, um, 
life and, and his rabbinate and his teaching uh, a particular approach uh, to Jewish life. He was um, uh, seeing that in, in kind of response to uh, what, uh, what was going on in American Jewish hist- in American Jewish life in the early part of the 20th century, uh, where he saw a lot of people who were kind of falling away from Judaism and not really connecting with um, Judaism and Jewish community. And what he realized and what he felt is that um, two main things, one that uh, Judaism as a, as a religion, as a faith tradition, he kind of turned things on its head and, and sort of determined that it's not, there's, it's not that there's Judaism and then there's adherence to Judaism, but he almost in a sociological way, uh, felt that there's an entity called the Jewish people that are people who um, who are Jewish and have a culture and a civilization and a history and a language and practices that define any culture and that there is the Jewish people. And the religion is a part of that, uh, that Judaism is an expression of the Jewish people. And what that meant, therefore, is that Judaism needs to respond in a way to the needs of Jews. And so therefore, if Judaism isn't working or particular practices aren't uh, um, uh, being followed or whatnot, people falling away, then Judaism needs to change, essentially. And that we start from a place of tradition, that the Jewish tradition informs us, but it doesn't uh, dictate to us that we engage with it and, um, uh, and work within it. And sometimes practices need to be uh, changed, or sometimes the meanings behind them need to be revalued. But in any way, he, he established a more dynamic uh, process of change that's rooted within Jewish community, within the Jewish people, as opposed to, say, being imposed from, uh, from above. His, um, one of the taglines tag that um, defines Reconstructionism is, the past has a vote, but not a veto meaning that we don't, we inherit Jewish tradition and give weight to it, but it doesn't dictate who we are. We use it to inform our practices and then make choices. And um, so about the movement piece, you know, that that was his philosophy. And for a while, it was really just that, a philosophy. Uh, Kaplan, when he was writing in like the 30s and 40s, really thought that he was going to change American Judaism, that everybody was going to adhere to uh, his ideas and that, you know, it would just infuse uh, Judaism. And that was not the case per se. I mean, more and more so as time goes on, but, you know, he wasn't, it wasn't moving fast enough to his, uh, um, uh, to his desires. And so it was really his, his disciples, his, his immediate students who then decided that um, we needed to establish a movement, another movement. And so they opened a rabbinical college in the 1960s, and then synagogues who ad- adhered to the philosophy uh, began affiliating with the movement. And so you have, it's, it's smaller, but it has in, in many ways the, the same um, structures as other movements, a rabbinical school, a, a body of congregations, and, um, and uh, continues to uh, play a role in, in American Jewish life. All right. Thank you. That's really uh, excellent. I, I find that fascinating, the whole, um, you know, how dynamic it sounds, you know, like, uh, and what, we, what you said that the past 
doesn't have a veto over that was um that's a, I think that's an interesting approach. Um, did you grow up, Rabbi, in the Reconstructionist movement, or did you find it later in life? I did not. I found it later in life. I was um, so I'm originally, although as as Lynn mentioned, I'm in the Northwest right now, and, and I'm uh, but I was originally from the New York area and uh, outside of New York City, and the the congregation, and I grew up within the conservative movement. Um, it was. Uh, my family was was fairly involved in our synagogue growing up and and uh, went regularly and had my bar mitzvah and continued through youth group and so it was very much informed by the uh, by the conservative movement and um, uh, and but on the other hand it was kind of an interesting unique congregation looking back I'm able to see it's, it's kind of a unique and interesting congregation in the sense that it was small it wasn't very large and there was uh, a lot of um, especially in those days, I'm talking about the, uh, you know, the eighties, um, there was egalitarianism or, you know, equal practice of men and women within the conservative movement, um, not as extensive as it was now. Uh, but so we were a, a highly egalitarian congregation and that we had um, really equal participation across the board and, and, you know, very small kind of almost like a once one room synagogue in a way. Uh, so I was very informed by that. And so, um, and I had really good rabbinic mentors, uh, rabbis who I, who I admired. Um, I, I didn't grow up thinking I, I wanted to be a rabbi. I, I enjoyed it and had a really uh, active life within our synagogue. Uh, but I was interested in other things. I, I was interested in politics and political science and journalism. And I, I was in those fields for a couple of years, uh, but it's still kind of, uh, was in the back of my mind somewhere, and um, but I wasn't uh, I wasn't sure if uh, the conservative movement was for me. I sort of moved um, uh, a bit to the left, I guess you could say, in terms of both uh, politically and uh, theologically, um, and uh, so I wasn't. I was in a place that I felt was a bit more progressive than the conservative movement was at that time. And I'm talking now about the nineties. Um, but yeah, I was still kind of drawn to it. And um, I, so I was kind of in the middle. I wasn't really sure where I would be. And at that time, I, uh, a couple things happened. I um, met my now wife and she um, had reconstructionist uh, backgrounds. She was uh, originally from Eugene, Oregon, her father was a rabbi, Zikron Ali Brachai, since passed away. Um, but he was a rabbi who was ordained within the reform movement, but later in his life uh, joined the Reconstructionist movement um, as a uh, kind of as an individual. And because um, uh, you can do that. I mean, you're, if you're ordained from one movement, you could, uh, as long as you kind of meet the qualifications, you can join another movement. Uh, by joining their rabbinical association. So he had done that. So he had influence. And the synagogue that he had served um, for many years was unaffiliated. So it wasn't part of a particular movement. So he kind of had those leanings. So I was influenced by her, by him through her and her uh, approach to Judaism. I was also, before I went to rabbinical school, I I took, because uh, I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to be a rabbi, although I was interested in Judaism and Jewish studies, I, I went to graduate school and did a master's in Jewish studies. And um, I happened to go 
to the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is the flagship institution of the conservative movement. I wasn't going uh, because I was grew up conservative per se. It was a good graduate school. And um, so I went and so I ended up kind of being in the orbit of the rabbinical school, but not a part of it. And it was kind of through that that I, I realized, oh, on the one hand, I'm not I don't really identify as a conservative Jew anymore uh, for a variety of reasons. And two, I started to take more classes in theology. And that's when I was introduced really to Mordechai Kaplan and was really taken with his ideas. And then when I was seriously thinking about rabbinical school, um, I looked at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, which I hadn't known that much of um, prior. Uh, but I also really liked the way that they trained rabbis in terms of their approach and the classes and really trained rabbis to work within the Jewish community. And so a combination of those things. Uh, and one other, actually mentioned too, one other influence was um, when I was in college, the campus rabbi was also Reconstructionist. Although at that point, I had no idea what that meant. You know, I wasn't, uh, uh, I hadn't really heard of Reconstructionism. I just knew who she was and her approach to Judaism and uh, without it being a label. And so when I was connecting later on, oh, that like she was reconstructionist and that's why she thought X, Y, and Z, then I was really uh, taken by it. So I ended up, um, yeah, so I went to the Reconstructionist Medical College and, and sort of identify as a reconstructionist now. And I've actually even served um, in the movement. I was president of our rabbinical association for a few years. So. Um, yeah, I still have uh, fondness, as it were, for the conservative movement, but it was uh, kind of where I'm from and not not where I am now. Thank you so much. Um, that's really interesting, and maybe you've said a lot of what is going to be in this next question. So oh, how would a Reconstructionist uh, synagogue differ from Reform or Conservative? I've always heard that Reconstructionism was kind of a middle ground between Conservative and Orthodox. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think that, um, you know, historically, and one thing I should mention, too, was, and I kind of, it sort of touches on both of the previous questions, is that Mordecai Kaplan as I mentioned, didn't really envision a new movement. He kind of thought that everything was going to, everyone was going to agree with him. And until it wasn't the case and he broke off. And so for many, like one of the ways I describe it sometimes is he was, because he worked at Jewish Theological Seminary, he taught there and he was part of the conservative movement. Um, and he was very much kind of the left wing of the conservative movement. I mean, all, you know, all movements, it's about, you know, my familiarity is Judaism, but from talking to colleagues and other uh, religions, you know, I think all kind of movements have their right wing and their left wing and, you know, tension just as anything here, <laughs> like even our country. So uh, that was true within the conservative movement. He was kind of on the left wing of the conservative movement. And um, when things weren't kind of going his way, ended up breaking off and forming the Reconstructionist movement. And, and in some ways in my personal story, I kind of did the same, you know, I was within the conservative movement and um, found, found myself too to the left. And so, um, you know, it's interesting when I uh, uh, relate to the previous question, when I was thinking about becoming a rabbi, I, I kind of had this tension. Do I stay within the conservative movement? Because that's the movement in which I was raised um, and try to change things from within, or do I 
move and you know identify differently and take on a different uh, I have ended um, for the latter and theological reasons were a lot of them uh, there were some practical reasons as well um but yeah I decided that so um so to your question yes I think that in many ways because of its history within the conservative movement the uh, there are aspects to Reconstructionist congregations that can seem more traditional than reform. Um, and at the same time, you know, it's very liberal in its approach to Judaism. So there are aspects that can seem um, obviously more reform than conservative. And so it's, it's somewhere uh, in the middle, I think, that that's, that's a good way to describe it. I sometimes describe it if people are familiar, especially if people have Familiarity with reform congregations and conservative congregations, I sometimes say it sort of falls out in the middle, um, especially with uh, not just services, but other practices and, and, um, and things like that. But at, at the same time, and this is coming from somebody who grew up in New York and now lives in the Northwest, um, I've, I found that congregations really kind of reflect their geography as well, and that there is some um, if we talk about different um, cultural um, or ways of being in the world from the East Coast versus being from the Northwest or whatnot, that definitely reflects in synagogue life as well. And so you can have, say, a Reconstructionist synagogue in, in the East Coast looking quite different from the Reconstructionist congregation of the West Coast because of, uh, even though they have this sort of foundation because they're really reflecting the the cultures. And I've been in reformed congregations that feel very much like reconstructionist congregations. And um, so it, it varies, it varies. But I think that you're right. I mean, it's, it's fair to say that there's a different starting point. Um, and so that's why I find it hard to, um, especially since there are fewer congregations within the reconstructive movement, I find it hard to, uh, especially if somebody's moving from one congregation to another, or they're coming from a you know, a reconstructionist congregation somewhere moving to Olympia saying, coming to ours, that there is no one way of being a reconstructionist congregation. There are definite uh, values that are shared um, in terms of, you know, a, a progressive approach to Jewish tradition, um, communal decision-making and reflecting the, if Judaism reflects the people of Israel, then this congregation's practice represents the people within the congregation. Those are the same, but then how they manifest might be different. Um, so yeah, I, again, sort of like on one foot to say that, yeah, it's somewhere between reform and conservative, I think is a good, a good marker for folks. Um, and, uh, and then just, you know, check out the flavor of, of what it is. is uh... Well, I'm also from New York, by the way, originally I've lived in six states, but um one of the things that I think is, um, and you kind of answered this, so there are different ways of practicing Reconstructionism. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, there's similarities, but I think that there are um, maybe differences in how decisions are are made, especially on a communal level. Uh, Lynn, am I? Uh, this is Tim. Um, are there, so um, one of the questions we had is what is, and I don't know if there really like is an answer to this, but <laughs> what's a reconstructionist approach to God? Like, you know, I mean, what are there things that are, you know, taught or practiced or what would you say about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that there, um, you know, I always go, 
always turn to um, Kaplan um, because he kind of let built the foundation. Although later on, you know, he was very much a rationalist, and and later on with influence of Jewish mysticism and a lot of and the Jewish renewal movement and people um, connecting with meditation and other things like that. Uh, pri- uh, subsequent to Kaplan. Um, there's been a change, but I think he, he kind of set the foundation in that um, the reconstructionist approach to God, and this is kind of Kaplan's, uh, and then um, sort of goes on from there. Is that one, well, one, Kaplan kind of rejected uh, a supernatural uh, being uh, as God, um, that uh, he didn't believe that it was, um, that God was a, uh, or is a, you know, a supernatural being who who sort of controls things and punishes and rewards and and all that, um, but in its place, uh, the way he conceptualized of God, and this is, um, you know, coming up through the reconstructionist movement, we collect these um, little catchphrases. As I said, I mentioned the past as a vote but not a veto. Uh, you know, ways of encapsulizing reconstructionist thought, and so. Uh, Kaplan's approach to God, uh, hit the famous phrase, the phrase that he used with that is, God is the power that makes for salvation. That God is the power that makes for salvation. Essentially, that we as humans are striving for fulfillment, for meaning, for uh, redemption, uh, you know, to change our, to grow and to change and to transform our world for the good. And, uh, God is that power that drives us uh, in that direction. And God is that um, uh, power. And again, not necessarily an external power, but sort of an internal uh, power that um, embodies our our highest ideals. Um, And so um, when we talk of God in those in the liturgies or in you know other aspects, that's what Kaplan was imagining. And that different aspects of Jewish tradition and Jewish practice give shape to um, that overall theme of God. What are the that that our practices, our holidays, Shabbat, embody particular values uh, that we we ascribe as divine or sacred, and we try to. You know, reach them and, and embody them. And um, uh, so it's almost like a God idea. And so it got, and so in that way too, it sort of opens up, you know, so on the one hand, when you say like, is there a reconstruction approach to God? I can say yes and no, right? Because there's a, <laughs> that idea. And then um, what, and then people might um, fill it differently. You know, I think that there's, um, you know, if the idea of God is to help us become, better people then for different people it might be different things it might be different um uh you know manifestations and and again as i mentioned the uh kaplan wasn't much into jewish mysticism um but the influence of jewish mysticism um in the last 10 20 30 40 years through the jewish renewal movement through the you know the expansion of of jewish teachings um has has informed things as well. So in terms of um, notions of a personal God, of people having direct relationships with with the divine, and um, also uh, 
Kaplan was uh, kind of a uh, uh, he, he saw he saw um, God is is kind of like the Force in Star Wars too, like the idea that uh, the power that sort of embody is runs through everything and runs through everything. That it's it's um, uh, God is both within us and outside of us and surrounding us, and so um, not out there, but in in here, and so. Um, yeah, what how people might talk about that might be, uh, it might be different for different individuals, but sort of rooted on that. If we were to say that there is one reconstructionist approach to God, great question. Lynn? Oh, Lynn. Yes, yes, yes. I wanted to make sure you were hearing me. Uh, are you going to let everyone know uh, when you'll be taking questions? Absolutely, it's in this script <laughs> because there because there has been a hand. Oh no. Well. You know, if there is a hand, um, uh, can we take that now, Tim? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. It's it's a phone number. 626 ending in 388. Oh, that might be Peter. Is that Peter? You may go ahead. Please go ahead. Uh, let me try it again. Yeah, it happens sometimes. There we go. Try it again. Yeah, Go this ahead. is Mitch Pomerantz. Can I be heard? Oh, Mitch, hi. Hi, my Hello friend. there. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rabbi, yeah. The, the, first, a couple of things. First of all, um, I was a little bit surprised when you, you indicated that Reconstructionism is between Reform and Conservative. Um, maybe it shows I haven't been in a synagogue in decades, although I was bar mitzvahed in a conservative synagogue. But the way you describe Reconstructionism was my notion of Reform Judaism. So I'd like you to, to maybe spend a couple of minutes going into a little more detail about the specific differences as you see them. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I think that this is a question that it's harder and harder to answer. And the reason I say that is because I, you know, this is not just my view. Like I, I tend to be one who can, I feel comfortable kind of moving between uh, movements and denominations and can find, and, and, and over the years, I mean, I've been a rabbi for 20 years and I've been um, sort of engaged in Jewish world for a bit longer than that. And I've really seen that, Denominational differences that might have existed at one point don't really exist anymore. Or, you know, there, there's sort of a, a, there's a lot of fluidity. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I would not deny that, you know, I, I don't have a background. I didn't grow up in the reform movement. I, like I mentioned, I grew up in the conservative movement. So that's my base point. Um, and my experience of being in reform settings has been mostly as an adult uh i mean i went to my friend's bar mitzvahs and in the next the reform synagogue nearby but i didn't really have a lot of um connection or understanding uh to what reform judaism was until um until i was an adult and i spent more time in reform spaces and you know in fact our kids we sent our kids to a reform summer camp and and things like that so uh, so yeah i mean i I share my experience and thank you for sharing your experience. Cause I think that, um, 
Yeah, it, it is different. And I think that even within the re reform movement, there are um, it, distinctions uh, and that there are different flavors of reform depending on where you are. And there's a movement uh, between, um, you know, what, what's considered more classical reform, which more um, uh, versus more embracing of like originally, and this is, and, and maybe some of the main differences has to do with history, right? And then to what extent history continues to inform uh, contemporary practice could be different. You know, the reform movement, older than the Reconstruction Movement, started in Germany uh, and started really with kind of a rejection of a lot of aspects of Jewish tradition, of Jewish practice, um, while embracing kind of the ethical and moral teachings of Judaism. And really as a reaction to um, the Enlightenment and trying to, um, being in uh, Central Europe and trying to sort of fit in with um uh, with their Protestant neighbors, you know, Lutheran neighbors, um, by changing, modifying practices that would mark them as distinct. Now, over time, the, concert, the reform movement has moved away from that and has embraced aspects of Jewish tradition, like kashrut, the dietary laws, uh, wearing tal talis and kippah, and, and, and sort of embraced a lot more of the traditional practice that the original reform movement in the 19th century might have rejected. So all, all that to say, I think that there's a, there's a great fluidity. And so, I, I mean, it definitely, it's, it's not when we, whenever we try to, um, you know, say shorthand, uh, there's always going to be, it's, it's never going to be exact. So I, I tend to, um, when I say it's sometimes between reform and conservative, it, it, it sort of sometimes comes down to, uh, you know, I think about people who sometimes come up to me and they have, uh, you know, they say like, well, I'm from a reform synagogue and you used a lot more Hebrew or like I'm from a conservative movement and you used a lot more English. So it's like, you know, it's hard to, to say sometimes what, how people define that. I think it's just, um, so, uh, yeah. So I want to, you know, value that experience and, and appreciate you sharing it, um, that it is hard to define at times, uh, which is why I think sometimes the denominational labels uh, aren't as helpful because, you know, synagogues will manifest them differently and you could be part of a conservative synagogue or, you know, a reform synagogue that feels much more like a reconstruction synagogue than one that feels like a, another reform synagogue in another place if they're um, more classically or traditionally reformed. So, um, and all that to say is I think that those distinctions, some of the distinctions that defined denominational differences in maybe 20, 30 40 years ago uh, are not there anymore because they've, we've all kind of come to the same place. I'm, I'm thinking about participation of women and ordination of women uh, or LGBTQ plus communities and ordination and participation and others as well. And so some of those aspects are, um, are while 20, 30 years ago, you would be, have real distinctions between movements around most non-Orthodox movements are on the same page with that. Uh, well, I, I certainly appreciate your, your comment about Jewish tradition has a vote, but not a veto. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that that's, that's a modernistic way of looking at Judaism and, 
and uh, it's it's one that I, I certainly uh, certainly would endorse and support. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for your question. I appreciate it. I also wanted to say this is Lynn um, that for people who aren't Jewish, that kashrut is keeping kosher and and uh, 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 aligning with the with the kosher laws in the Bible, and uh, the talit is the prayer oh. shawl which is worn, and also the kippah is the uh, have covering over the head that uh, well m many Jews do even if they're reformed. So that's it. Thank you, thank you, Lynn. For I I tend I um. I try to define my terms as I go, but of course I, I don't sometimes. <laughs> okay, you. and you have two more um, raised hands if you want to take them. Uh, why not? Is that okay, Tim? Okay, yeah, the first one. Okay. First okay. one is a phone number 330 ending in 157. Hello. This is Stephanie. Uh, I, Hi, uh, Stephanie. I really... you, were, you were here last week. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming back. Yes. Uh, so, what? Uh, what? What? What made? What made you uh, interested in uh, uh, decide? What made you decide to the, to uh, study Judaism? Um, yeah, great question. I, um, as I mentioned, I, I was brought up. Um, I kind of had a strong Jewish identity growing up. My family was very involved in our synagogue and, and uh, had a good Jewish education. Um, as, I, as I was an adult uh, through college and um, other uh, and post-college, I, I kind of went in and out of uh, Judaism and Jewish practice. You know, when, when it's always the case, you know, when I left home, I sort of again, moved away from my parents and sort of went to uh, sort of establish my own uh, identity and place in this world. And part of it was, um, you know, thinking about Judaism in different ways. And I wasn't, um, so I, you know, I became less connected to Jewish community at times and more connected and, and depending on where it was. And, but I still had this, this nagging sense within me that I wanted to, um, uh, study more and, and study more as an adult. You know, I, I was sort of raised, you know, I went to Hebrew school and I kind of raised throughout my teenage years, but as an adult post-college, um, I, I hadn't really studied Judaism or religion uh, formally. And I was drawn to that. And at the same time, I was drawn to working within the Jewish community or in some capacity, but I didn't know what that would be like at, at one point. So, hmm. so that's where I, you know, I, that's where I went. And when I started, I, I did a master's degree in Jewish studies. Um, and even then I, you know, as I was going through that program, I wasn't necessarily thinking about becoming a rabbi. I thought, Oh, I could become a teacher. I could work in a school, like a, a secondary school, or maybe go on for a PhD. And, and um, so I was interested in that aspect. And it was, it was through, um, uh, kind of as I was in school and sort of being around um, people who were studying to be rabbis and to sort of get a deeper sense about what that work involved, um, I was drawn to that. And even then, I wasn't exactly sure then what type of rabbi I wanted to be <laughs> in terms of what um, what field I would end up working because I one of the things that attracted me to the rabbinate is that, oh, I could end up working in a variety of different places. I could be a, 
I could work in a synagogue, yes, but I could also teach. I could be a chaplain uh, at a hospital or something like that or a school or so I wasn't. So when I even when I decided I wanted to enter the rabbinate, I wasn't exactly sure what uh, aspect that came to be. And then as I was wrapping up, I um, or finishing my rabbinical studies, had this opportunity to uh, this congregation in Olympia. And so I, you know, I, I visited and just had a really good experience and decided that's where I wanted to go. And that's where I've been ever since. So it's been a good fit. Thank you, Stephanie. You're welcome. Who's the next one? Hey, next is Mike Stern. Oh, my friend, Mike. Mike, thank you so much for being here. Hello. I had to chime in at some point. <laughs> um, it's just my nature. Hi, Rabbi. Hi, Mike. Um, I am um, just a, a, a small bit of background on me. I grew up in the conservative movement. I went to Camp Ramah here in, in Ojai, California. I'm from Santa Monica. I live in Santa Monica. And I left the conservative movement. I was kind of away from Judaism for a while. And then in the late 90s, I joined um, Beth Shur Shalom, which is a reform synagogue in Santa Monica. Um, Rabbi Neil Comas Daniels was my mentor. And I'm a musician, so I've been a lay musician. I've been a lay musician ever since. And so there are a couple, couple questions I have. One of them is a little more complex than the other. We'll start with the first, <laughs> the first one. The first one has to do with, um, you, deciding what music to you know how to choose music in in a reconstruction of synagogue in other words you know like in our case um in the reform in the temple i belong to and i i gotta get this out in the in the temple i belong to there's a lot of emphasis in the the dei acronym um <laughs> diversity equality and inclusion um i like to think i had a little to do with that but mm. whatever um, um the rat well now my rabbi just you know retire is now an emeritus but it it still holds true we have a you know and and this is the reason why i got drawn back to reform is that there's a lot of into either interfaith but more interbackground couples in um in our um in our synagogue maybe as many as 30 to 40% and there's a lot of um you know equality and acceptance that go that goes on and i i found that that's true overall more so in the reform movement than it had been let's say in the late 60s or early 70s so maybe we could talk about that a little bit but i also um wanted to ask about you know how you guys make your music choices um do you you know in a lot of conservative temples or especially orthodox nobody's ever heard of debbie friedman nobody's <laughs> ever heard you know so i wanted to get get a sense of where you guys were coming from um, along those lines too. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, and you know, I, I wish at times that um, uh, you know we're a smaller congregation, and sometimes I wish we had access. Sometimes I could use a cantor. I can't. I was I, <laughs> the reason I became a rabbi, not a cantor, right? So I was not um, the most musical, and um, which was. Uh, 
although I was familiar with a lot of Jewish music, but it wasn't necessarily, you know, my forte to lead it. And so I, um, uh, so when I, when I got here and, and over the years, you know, we've, um, sort of relied on different things. I think that um, we do have, and yeah, and that's a good point. You know, growing up in the conservative movement, you know, we had our traditional tunes, but I didn't really know about the larger world of Jewish music until again, I became uh, an adult. And maybe even when I got into rabbinical school, you know, it's just like, cause I just, you know, I sort of knew traditional tunes and, and that in the conservative synagogue I grew up with, um, kind of just stuck with the nusach, which is the, um, you know, the melodies that go with the prayers, not necessarily the compositions, but, you know, these sort of repeated melodies. And, and um, so now it's, um, I mean, I'm open, like personally, I'm open. And sometimes my aspiration is greater than my skill, right? So I'm, I'm definitely open to, and, uh, you know, I love, there's also such a tremendous revival in, in contemporary Jewish music as well, um, through, you know, not just Debbie Friedman, but also other uh, uh, musicians within the reform movement. There's the something called the Rising Song Institute. So there's a lot of great Jewish music coming out there. And so I, to the extent that I can, I try to introduce things. Um, we had a pretty vibrant, even before I got here, we had a pretty vibrant um, uh, um, music scene and that people who are musically knowledgeable, lay people who... Um, uh, would bring different things. Uh, we have a wonderful choir that I know Lynn is a member of, and um, we have a choir director who's been with us for longer than I've been here, who is um, also is finds a lot of great compositions and brings it to um, to the choir. And sometimes those choir melodies become congregational melodies. And um, but I'm always looking to do more. And in fact, just the past, uh, you know, I personally. Uh, took on learning the guitar like about three or four years ago. Oh. And, uh, so I've started to, to just increase my um, facility and then try to bring in new music with that. And I'd love to bring in more um, now that I have sort of more facility and experience with, with instruments to bring in um, uh, different, uh, maybe other musicians. And we've dabbled over the years with that. And, and there's always, um, well, as I'm sure that your experience, Mike, you know, there's uh, every time you bring in a new tune, there's the people who love it, people who don't yeah. like it. You know, it's like so. It's always yeah. a always a thing. But I, I definitely want to. Um, uh, it's definitely um, kind of my interest to uh, to do that. And, and so I don't, you know, I'm I'm really open to like whatever. Um, and so it's been a great partnership with our choir. Like I said, we don't have a we have lay people who have um, uh, led sort of act as cantoral soloists at times. And um, uh, I, I mentioned our choir and, and so on. I'm always on the, uh, uh, the lookout for new music. And so, yeah, I'd love to, if you have any great recommendations, send them our way. And, um, but you're right. Like I had the same experience growing up in the conservative movement. I never heard of Debbie Friedman until yeah. <laughs> later we, on. And now she's an important part of our repertoire. Well, what wound up happening with us is that we've got a lot of, we have a very high per capita of, of lay musicians that are good. Um, so we've written a lot of our own stuff. Oh, wow. And, that's fantastic. Um, I'll get, I'll get your contact info from Lynn, Lynn, if you later, if we can do that and I'll send you stuff. I mean, oh, great. We, I love it. We, 
we got a lot of stuff, but I'd love it. Um, so, but I, let me, I'll get off. So, I mean, not get off, but mute and let others, um, ask. Cause there, there was a, one other question I had that had to do with prayer, but, um, um, well, let me, I'll just ask it real quick. Um, when, you know, it, it's like one of the things that seems to come up, I mean, within Reformed Judaism or, you know, the debate within our synagogue, we've got people who look at God in a real traditional way, like, you know, the guy that sits up there and makes, you know, decisions or whatever. And then we have people that don't believe in God at all. But, you know, consider themselves very Jewish and, you know, both in, in, you know, the tradition, you know, in, in, um, practicing traditions and stuff like that. But what I'm wondering about reconstructionism is, you know, it's a really, I guess the litmus test is when something bad happens. Um, like, you know, you, you, you lose, you know, you lose a relative to a car accident or whatever. And how, how did Mordecai Cap? And I remember studying about him in the 60s, you know, Ooh. when I was at Camp Ramah, but it was, it was peripheral stuff. So I didn't really totally understand it. But how did Mordecai Kaplan view prayer in that situation? Do you pray to a God? Do you pray like you were mentioning the force? Um, you know, that maybe God is the force or the power force that gets you to, to be a better, you know, human being. How do you deal with, with tragedy? I mean, I've read when good, you know, when bad things happen to good people and, and, you know, Harold Kirshner's book and stuff. How, what is your take on that? What, how do you feel personally? And how did Kaplan feel about that kind of thing? Thank you, Mike. Yeah, great, great question. Um, and it's always sort of the, the heart, you know, the, the challenging um, theological, you know, question. And I think that, um, you know, I, you know, for Kaplan who rejected the supernatural God, that it wasn't a, a you know, somebody who was doing something or it wasn't the fault over the cause of uh, uh, a deity, but yet that, um that Judaism and Jewish practice provides a container for, um, and this is kind of my personal view as well, that, that Judaism and Jewish practice provides a container for dealing with a lot of difficult things, not, not in the sense of like, okay, we have an easy answer for it, or um, we, you know, we, we, we don't really have an answer for why good things happen to bad or bad things happen to good people. Um, uh, but uh, but a way to work through you know emotions and and feelings and to uh, be supported in that and I think that you know when getting to the prayer question in general I think that with the um, with the, with Kaplan's view of of it that it was right if you're not praying out then who are you praying to and it's um, in some ways, prayer, if, if God is an expression of or an embodiment of values and ideas that uh, are important to us, then prayer is in a way an expression of those. And in many ways, we're praying not, not out there to a, to a deity, but we're praying, praying to ourselves, not in the sense that we're the God, the God but that we, you know, there are words in there about being compassionate, being 
merciful, being uh, adhering to justice uh, that apply to us and that we, we hear those words. And I think that then when we're dealing with tragedy and loss and, and difficulty, that there is um, uh, no one or no, no thing to blame per se, but yet we find a container, a vessel for dealing with our very real uh, emotions and, you know, death and dying is, as you mentioned, is, is, is key. And I look at the Jewish traditions around death and dying and how um, they are elaborate stages of mourning and grief, and that there was something there to um, uh, a real understanding about how to um, work through those things. So the idea that um, immediately after a loss, there's, and, and of course, and recognizing that we might embody them or, or, or live these things differently depending on our life circumstance that, you know, this idea that we have of Shiva, the first seven days after a loss, we take ourselves out of our lives and, uh, you know, take a break from our day to day. People uh, invite people to visit us or to reach out and, you know, knowing that we're not alone and that we continue to um, then go through different mourning stages over the course of, you know, the next month, the next year, uh, the next couple of years, what have you. Um, that those, those rituals provide containers for, um, uh, for that. And just as say, um, uh, you know, different holidays will provide containers for, uh, engaging with different, um, aspects of life or God or the divine or values. Um, so that they, they're, they're meant there to like, not, so I think that they go together sort of prayer and ritual and holidays and observances that are there to provide structure for our lives, which otherwise could be seemingly chaotic. And also as touch points to remind us of various things that should be important to us as, uh, as individuals. Okay. Um, do we have any other hands or do we want to ask more questions, Tim? No more raised hands this Tim? time. Tim, okay. So go ahead, Tim. All right. So Rabbi, this question's kind of broad. And um, right. but do you do you think synagogues in general are keeping pace with the needs of American Jews today? That is a that is an awesome question because I think that that's what um, so many people are thinking about um, these days. Um, because, you know, to see that going back to the, the sort of almost reconstructionist approach, right? That um, uh, if Judaism needs to meet the needs of contemporary Jews, then how can Judaism change? And part of that question is how can Jewish institutions change, right? Or, and are the same, just as Kaplan would say, well, the, you know, these practices might need to be modified moving forward to be more relevant Then, in some ways you could ask the same questions of, of institutions. Like, could these synagogues, do these do synagogues need to change? And, you know, I think it's a, it's a fabulous question. Um, and it's really hard to nail down at, at this point. And sometimes it's, you know, we're watching it and participating it 
in it at the same time? And I would say sometimes yes and sometimes no. Um, and the question is, can, can our synagogues nimble enough to change or do we need new formats and institutions? And maybe it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think that um, uh, some of it has to do with needs and interests. Some of it has to do with, uh, you know, location and circumstance. Um, you know, I could just say a few things. I think that um, one of the things we learned uh, over the pandemic is that um, things could be delivered in other ways, right? So we have <laughs> um, uh, institutions that are there uh, brought into their reach uh, in ways that are meaningful for Jews everywhere. I mean, one example I'm thinking of is the uh, is an organization called the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, which runs classes and things, but they've, uh, during the pandemic, they brought in uh, their reach and provide a, a daily meditation uh, on Zoom and classes more on Zoom. And those are ways that prior to this, prior to maybe the pandemic even, or prior to this technology existing, that if you weren't living in a place that had a class on that, then you, you know, you weren't able to experience it. And, um, or if your rabbi was not interested in it, or you didn't have anybody, you know, whatever. So, uh, or you didn't live in, say, a large metropolitan area where there was a lot more diversity and resource. Um, so in that way, I think that there are new things uh, coming online that um, that augment, support um, Jewish life in general, uh, and that things are a lot more um, available uh, and reachable now than they had been. And, um, and at the same time, I do think, I mean, I, my bias is I'm a, I'm a congregational rabbi, right? I work within synagogues. Um, that there is value in those uh, institutions uh, because they are the, the touch points that bring communities together uh, in in shared values and in shared touch points. And, and I think too that going to my personal experience, you know, I, I chose to come out here and I um, work in a synagogue that is very much a community synagogue in that it is um, located in a geographic area where you don't have really any other expressions of, uh, or, you know, institution, Jewish institutions. I mean, I, you know, we have Chabad uh, here in Olympia as well, but, you know, you don't have a JCC, a Jewish community center. You don't have a, another synagogue down the street that offers a different approach. Um, so in that way, I find value in this notion of, um, you know, one of the ways I look at my job is that I'm kind of the parish priest, right? I, I serve a, a geography as a, in addition to a specific synagogue. And I think in that way, I like to think our synagogue remains relevant because we're, we're a focal point on a touchstone for people who are Jewish in this area and then finding a connection. And if they need a rabbi, they need support. I mean, one thing we're not going to, you're not going to get online is, you know, somebody to visit you bedside in the hospital, for example. Um, and synagogues are what sustain rabbis in communities. So, so yes, I think that they're, and at the same time, synagogues have to be aware enough to like not continue to exist just for the sake of existing or to 
stay in ways that, oh, we have to do it this way because we've always, always done it. Um, but to really think about how we can um, adapt and evolve and, and continue to meet the needs. So it's, a, so, you know, getting back to the point, it's, it's a, it's an unresolved, there's no one answer because it's the question is still, um, uh, you know, still being asked and answered and, and we're continuously evolving. I mean, one of the things, going back to Kaplan, I'll say two more things about Kaplan and Reconstructionism uh, regards this question. One is that when Kaplan was envisioning synagogues in his uh, thought process, that uh, he he came up with the notion of a Jewish center, that he imagined, and in his phrase, uh, a shul with a pool and a school, shul being a, you know, a Yiddish word for synagogue. And so he imagined that it would be a place that you come not just for services, but you just come to be together as Jews. And we very much try to adapt that. We don't have a pool here in, in Olympia in our synagogue, but we try to uh, approach that and say, we are the, we are a Jewish center and we want to uh, meet people's Jewish needs, regardless of how they uh, define them. And the other, the other thing Kaplan said is that in addition to his formulation around Judaism is that he also said, uh, Judaism is continuously evolving and that um, we, we have to, almost like, you know, he was almost influenced like in Darwin in that way, um, he, that, that he felt that that was kind of the uh, approach to Judaism, that Judaism is continuously evolving, that there wasn't one, there isn't a Judaism that, that people then deviate from or, you know, play off of, but that Judaism itself is continually evolving to meet the needs of contemporary Jews, and whether we realize it or not, that's what's happening. And I think that that's the case too with uh, with synagogues and institutions. That you know, sometimes, say with the pandemic, something forces us to change. Other times, they just naturally occur, and we don't even realize it's happening. Perhaps so. Um, so yeah, I again, yes and no, and I think that that's um, it's a great question that we continually. Um, uh, to look at, you know, I mean, yeah. I think there are some people who there's some voices in the Jewish community like, oh, synagogues are of the past, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think that's the case. Um, no, and I agree with what you said about there's differences where the synagogue, you know, a member can visit you and if you're in the hospital or things like that. It's that um, local connection to a person, which is important. Um, you know, one yeah, of the one things thing I, can, I can add to that, Tim, you know, sure. the, um, during the pandemic, people, one of the things that was being talked about in, in um, synagogue life, you know, cause that's <laughs> where I'm always listening uh, was about this idea of distance memberships that, Oh, people who, um, uh, you know, tune into a service in New York, say, for example, from the West coast can join that synagogue by, you know, signing up or making a donation or whatnot. And I, I just thought like, well, so what does that mean? So that means when you're, in the hospital or sick, you're going to call that rabbi in New York. It just says, you know, that's not how it works. So it's, uh, I, I don't think that went very far, that whole notion of quote unquote distance memberships, but it was just really interesting. I think it's like people and probably because people realize, no, actually what, you know, the proximity is just as important and, and nothing will really replace that. I mean, I actually, there are some aspects to it and I'll say this too, that, um, uh, sorry, these are all great questions. So I have lots of, you know, it's like <laughs> that. Um, I love the fact that the Institute for Jewish Spirituality puts out all this stuff because then I don't have to. Not that I'm trying to get out of work, but I'm just saying like, 
maybe it's not my skill set, or maybe it's not like, um, uh, you know, my, my orientation, but I know a number of people in my community who tune in every day, you know, and that's like, great. That's wonderful. They don't do it at the expense of their participation at the, at my synagogue. They, it's part of it. And I know that too, it's like, we've seen great collaboration. So my, um, Currently here in Washington, you know, we have an organization of, of rabbis called the Washington Coalition of Rabbis, which is, um, uh, you know, just uh, non-Orthodox rabbis in Washington state uh, for collegiality and, and collaboration. And one thing we started last year that we're going to do again is an online introduction to Judaism class um, where about 20 of us are, teach in it, or even more so, actually about 26, 27 different rabbis teach in this class. And this is something like, I don't have the capacity to, uh, because of the size of my community and because of the, like, first of all, there's not necessarily the need every year uh, or the audience for an introduction to Judaism class. And I don't necessarily have the capacity to do it every year, but we can collaborate in this new way using this new technology in a way that benefits all of us. And again, not at the expense of being part of a synagogue or, or, but it's a value add in that. And so, yeah, so, so many things to watch and to, to see where things are going and, and some things are going to take off. Some things are going to fall by the wayside and, and it's just a continuous process. Right. Right. Well, and um, I, I do want to share a little bit about my experiences. I've, I've lost mm. my vision, the majority of my vision in the past two years. And mm. um I was a member of a synagogue for a good 15 years or so before that. And once I lost my vision, I found all these barriers at my synagogue and mm. it, it was, it really obstacles to me participating and doing things. So um, full disclosure here, I um, went looking and I, I live a little bit further North in Olympia. I found your wife's um, yeah. synagogue <laughs> and I'm a member there now, but one of the reasons I joined, it was like all the stars lined up, like, the first time I called the office at that temple, um, they said, oh, by the way, we're having a Havdalah ceremony this Saturday, and I hope you can attend by Zoom because one of our members who's blind has written a book, and we're having a book launch party. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, <laughs> um, welcome to the dis- blind and disabled people, right? That's great. There you go. And, then, and then when I walked into the synagogue for the first time, um, one of the members said, saw me with my cane and said, white cane and said, oh, I'm so excited that you're here. We have these new prayer books that are, we have both large print and braille. Which one would you like? And I was just like, okay, so like, there's no obstacles here. I just <laughs> found that so refreshing. But um, what you said about like morphing to the needs, I do tend to zoom in to most of the services um, yeah. because driving, I mean, I can't right. drive, right? So transportation is a problem, but I feel it's important to connect and be part of a mm-hmm. temple. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things about you that I wanted to share with the people listening is you've done this wonderful video series um, called Carpooling with the Rabbi. <laughs> and I have watched those many times. Oh, I find you. them fascinating discussions it's between the rabbi rabbi seth and a um uh uh i don't know she was an employee at the temple is that correct yeah and um they're just driving in a car on the way to work carpooling together and videoing these uh, just different talks and i would just recommend it to anybody but i are you going to do any more video series like that because that was just outstanding (laughs) thank you so much that was great um i appreciate that endorsement um (laughs) That, you know, I've, 
Um, yeah, well, I, I, I've always liked to play around with different media and um, because um, just for my own internal creativity and just to play around. And I'm also interested in the idea of how could we find different ways to teach Judaism. Um, and so, um, yeah, that, that, that web series was great. It was a, um, we, uh, um, and the back, the backstory behind that is so, um, Emmy, who, uh, who worked with me, uh, as our administrator, um, was, uh, I guess, you know, your, uh, not your stereotypical millennial, but she's a millennial. I'm a Gen Xer, so it's like different. You know, we had different um, uh, orientations uh, to life and technology, and and we, um, in the context of the synagogue, we were talking about different ways of you know using media and social media and, and things, and maybe videos and whatnot. But we never really formulated a plan, and and at the same time, um, we would always have these conversations about spirituality um, just in the context of working together. <laughs> and um, we would have these really interesting theological conversations whether they were asking me questions or we would just talk about things. And, and there was that. And then we literally carpooled. So that was, <laughs> uh, they moved to a, a house uh, not far from my son's school. So I would, uh, and they didn't have a car at the time. Um, so they were taking the bus to work. And I think it just came up at one point that, oh, they were living like a block from my son's school and I drive him to school every day. And so I said, do you want me to just pick you up? So you don't have to worry about the bus. And so we were literally carpooling and then we just kind of hit on this idea. We started filming these. Uh, and a lot of those were on some, we prompted some, we had ideas that we wanted to talk about other times we would just get in the car and, start talking about something. So yeah, I guess, you know, I did that with just with the idea of trying to think about, okay, let's, um, what are some other ways that we can, you know, that I think that spirituality uh, and, and they weren't necessarily all Jewish, Tim, as I'm sure you can attest, you know, there was some Jewish themes, obviously as a, uh, as a rabbi, but they weren't always exclusively Jewish. We talked about different um, spiritual ideas and, and theology. And so that was great. So I, I, you know, that ended when, um, when they stopped working <laughs> at the synagogue. Uh, but I've tried to dabble in other um, media as well. I did a podcast for a number of years um, that I called uh, Torah TLDR. And TLDR is a, you know, an internet uh, acronym that stands for too long, didn't read. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're posting a large article, um, you might just say TLDR and just give the, you know, the premise or the, you know, the executive summary. Uh, so I did a one minute podcast called Torah TLDR, where I did a sort of one minute teaching on the weekly Torah portion. Uh, and I did that for a few years until I just decided to um, uh, take a break. And that's still up too. So, I, you know, people can say that. So I, uh, I feel like I'm on a talk show, Tim, where you prompt me to talk about my latest projects. This is great. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, um, the carpooling is still up on YouTube. My Torah TLDR is still up. Uh, we're on different podcast sites. And in the past two years, I've started doing um, TikTok videos. So that was the, um, uh, you, you know, I think that, well, Johanna, that Tim mentioned my wife, I uh, was also a rabbi in Kirkland. Um, we, you know, over the pandemic, we started watching 
TikTok videos and and sort of watch listening to those and and I thought well I can maybe take do one of these or something and so I um, <laughs> ended up getting into TikTok so again just thinking about what are what media are people um, you know and I, I don't deign to be like a influencer or content creator you know as these terms are are used but just somebody who likes to explore different ways of of teaching because I know that there are people. Um, out there who might not be part of spiritual community, who might not be part of a synagogue. But I think that the, the, the draw to spirituality is, is natural to who we are as humans. And now people, especially younger folks, are, are, are drifting to different media, different platforms. And so why not have spirituality be a part of those? platforms as well so we'll see how long i do that and and uh if i go back to doing web series or whatnot i'm not sure uh but i've just been having fun trying to experiment with different um different formats for uh for teaching uh for teaching judaism diana are there any more questions uh no there's not okay so one of the questions we also have is what is your favorite Jewish holiday and why? And do you have any good books to recommend? <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I know you gave me the question before and I have a hard time. I think that one of my favorite holidays is um, uh, it's Sukkot, uh, our fall harvest festival. Um, it's, it was interesting it's one of those holidays that I didn't really grow up celebrating. I, I mentioned we were, we were a part of, um, uh, we were very involved in our synagogue growing up. And at home, our home life was, um, we were um, fairly active and observed a lot of the holidays, but some holidays weren't as emphasized as others. So we, you know, we celebrate the high holidays of the new year and the day of atonement and Passover, the fall festival of freedom, and very, very much into that. Sukkot was one of those holidays that we didn't uh, really observe. I mean, obviously when I was, in Hebrew school, it was it was part of that, but at home we didn't really uh, observe Sukkot. And, and I, as an adult, I got um, very much into it because it's very um, for a number of reasons. One, it's uh, uh, it's a fall holiday, and I love the fall. Um, I I just love the the um, the season. Um, it's uh, it comes right after the high holidays, so it's kind of a release in a way. It's uh, from the the solemnity of the high holidays of the new year and the day of atonement into something more visceral and fun it's something that um uh so the main observances of sukkot which is a hebrew word that means booths or like sheds or something like that that is to build uh, sort of a temporary structure uh either in your yard at home or we do it at the synagogue as well and this is meant to symbolize one, the fall harvest, uh, because you decorate this booth with um, a lot of greenery and with fresh, uh, with with agricultural themed um, uh, decorations, and you also it's covered in a in a natural roof. So you might build the walls out of something, but the roof always has to be uh, greenery uh, or something natural. And so I just. Um, 
And so it also celebrates the mark, the uh, the story of the the Torah story of the Israelites wandering in the desert for forty years, and that the idea is that during those wanderings, they will um, build temporary structures uh, along the way. Uh, so it has a multiplicity of of meanings. Another one of the um, uh, observances is the collecting of what's called the lulav and etrog, which are four different plants which are uh, bound together uh, in a um, uh, kind of a, uh, well, three of them are bound together in one holder. And then the etrog, which is a lemon type fruit uh, is separate. And, and the idea, it's just, it's a very visceral holiday. I think that's what I like about it. Um, and it's very close, attaches us to the, it's very close to the earth. I mean, we go outside, we celebrate it outside. We take these plants we wave the plants all around in eight directions. It's customary to even to eat your meals in a sukkah and, uh, you know, outdoors and just that. And it also reminds us of, you know, it's a structure, but it also has themes of vulnerability built in and, you know, is a structure of protection, but yet it's also exposed to the elements. Uh, so there were just a lot of themes that go in and I, and I love the idea of, um, uh, you know, decorating the sukkah and you can collect decorations that we do and over the years and and um, also a way of engaging the community. Uh, in so I, so I've, I've become a fan of sukkah. I mean, I like a lot of holidays. So I think that uh, sukkot has been um, uh, become one of my favorites. I think because it wasn't something I necessarily uh, celebrated growing up, but that came to more as an adult. And, and you know, again, like my, we have nice associations with it. Personally, my um, I love the fall. I we got married in the fall. Our older son was born in the fall, right at, around Rosh Hashanah. So, um, so they're just nice. So we set like uh, so like I have this nice memory of celebrating Sukkot with him as our newborn. You know, so the things like that. I guess Sukkot is one of my favorite holidays for all of those things. I, I just like the idea of Judaism. I'm oh, sorry. I like the idea of Judaism being very. Um, uh, you know, it's a lived experience. So, so like actually like taking plants and like smelling these plants and holding them and feeling them is part of the ritual just feels very, uh, you know, powerful to me. This wasn't a question that we had, but I know that you also are doing work with interfaith. Can you talk about the interfaith work you're doing? Yeah, sure. I mean, we have a very, uh, very strong, uh, that even predates me, you know, in, in Olympia, a very strong uh, interfaith uh, organization here in Olympia. And I just find it to be very um, uh, important, you know, especially in a, in a place where we are a smaller community where we, we kind of need to coll collaborate and cooperate with, with our neighbors. I, I mean, I like the fact that our synagogue uh, is serves the Jewish community and is a um, focal point for the preservation and passing down of Judaism. And I think it's important that we're involved in the greater community to address issues that are of shared concern, like um, issues around homelessness, for example, in our community or uh, other, other social issues. So, I, I mean, I think that our Judaism, our Jewish values uh, promote that. And a way that we do that, this in our community, is through interfaith cooperation. So we and it's just a great way of learning from each other. And I don't want to, and especially with, um, we know we have issues of 
hatred and anti-Semitism and um, that we are continually uh, dealing with. And I feel that while we need to be protect ourselves and be safe, uh, I think that part of the way of um, combating that is by being engaged in our community and being vocal and visible where people know what we're doing and that we have friends and allies in other faith traditions, faith communities who uh, will be there to support us when needed. And we can be there to support them when needed. I mean, we have a very um, wonderful relationship with our local Muslim community and, you know, there are shared concerns there. Um, and so if we're able to show up for them. They could show up for us and we just have wonderful uh, dialogues and connections. So I think it's really important uh, for Jewish communities to be engaged uh, in interfaith learning. And it also is a way of promoting and teaching Judaism among uh, other, other faith traditions so they can learn uh, about us and what it is we do and we can learn about them. And that's how we really um, build relationships. So um, yeah, I find it to be very valuable uh, work and important work. Um, Tim? Anything um, else to say? One of the questions I I, I think we missed was the uh, are there any good books that you'd recommend uh, uh, either about um, like do you have any favorite ones that are uh, whether they're Jewish or Reconstructionist or like anything like if anybody wants to look into more? Yeah, I'd say um, <clears throat> it's a great question. I didn't think about. It. I'd say that if somebody wants to read um, uh. So we'll start like if someone wants to learn more about reconstructionism, or at least like go right go to the sources, as it were, um, and read some Kaplan. Kaplan was kind of a, a prolific writer, and sometimes he just seemed to write the same thing over and over again, but the but the uh, in different forms. But the, if if someone's interested in in actually reading Mordechai Kaplan, uh, the book that I always recommend is called. The Meaning of God in Modern Jewish Religion. Um, not the most exciting title, but it's a, it's a wonderful book where what he does is um, goes through each holiday of the Jewish calendar and writes a chapter on that holiday talking about how that holiday is, ex is a different expression of how we can understand God. So on the one hand, it's a, it's a, sort of a practical introduction to holidays at, from a Reconstructionist perspective, while it's also a theological meditation on God. And I, I find it to be a very accessible book because he can sometimes write very densely. Um, so uh, so if anyone's interested in Kaplan, you know, reading Kaplan, uh, that's, uh, that's the book I tend to recommend, uh, The Meaning of God in Modern Jewish Religion. Um, as far as other books, I mean, I think that, um, yeah, there's so many. I tend to read a lot of pieces of books as opposed to like cover <laughs> to cover uh, because, you know, either I'm doing uh, research and, and whatnot and things like that. I mean, I, 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 um, I'll do something which I don't know if I'm supposed to do. I can recommend a book I haven't read. Is that uh is that fair? Or it's a book that's on my pile. I just know I recommend it because I know the author. And, um, you know, if you're thinking about more contemporary Reconstructionist text, Kaplan, obviously, writing in the mid 20th century, but a book that I haven't read yet, although it's sitting on my um, uh, 
sitting on my pile and I know the author and she's a reconstructionist rabbi in the Boston area and has, um, I've heard her speak a number of times on this topic is that she wrote a book called God is here reimagining the divine. And it's a, um, it's an approach to um, thinking about God sort of rooted in the idea of metaphor, like the, really coming from the place of like how language is limiting and that we um, the ways we describe things, including God are sometimes limited by our language. And so she does a deep dive into um, the meaning of metaphor and how Jewish tradition has approached uh, language around God um, for, uh, for a long time and how we can understand maybe how that impacts our understanding of what God is in our lives. So I'm very excited to read it. Um, it's not a, it's not a huge book. Um, so, uh, but, so I'm recommending a book I haven't read. So if you don't like it, you can't blame me, I guess, but the, uh, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to reading it too. And I, again, if the, you know, people are thinking about reconstructionism specifically and, and want to get that, um, I'd say that. Yeah. We have less than eight, we have about yep. eight minutes. Yep. I, I got it. I thank you so much, Diane. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, do we have any hands at all? No, no, man, we don't. Well, they must have heard every, I think you must have answered everything they had to, to, to ask today. Wow. I guess that's pretty good. <laughs> Tim, did you have any uh, closing comments or anything like that? Um, closing comments. Well, first of all, Rabbi, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate your taking the time. Um, we, we created, or Lynn um, started this uh, weekly call, the Jewish hour on, um, yeah. on, on our uh, American Council of Blind, you know, uh, one of our series of calls. Um, and I think it's been a really good place for us to connect as Jewish people from across the country, just to, and we have other, other people who are regulars who are non-Jews as well, who are interested or who have, um, oh, other shared experiences, but it's just been a really nice place. And we really um, appreciate your willingness to take time to talk with us because we get into all kinds of questions like you know what does this group believe or what do they do and how do they practice and um you know talking about holidays deep dives so it's a real treat for us to have someone like you who's willing to share time with us and answer our questions so i really do appreciate that well i I appreciate the opportunity i love uh uh just thank you for um for inviting me um and being able to share and all the great questions and uh I, i I love all these. Anytime I have an opportunity to share about um, talk about Judaism is great because I always come away learning something too, based on the questions or, you know, I, uh, that might cause me to think about something in a different way that I hadn't thought of before. You know, I might enter into a, you know, an opportunity like this kind of prepared and knowing what I'm going to say, but then I get a, you know, then I think about you, you raise up some great questions like, Oh yeah, well, let me explore that. And so it's a, it's a learning opportunity for me as well. So I appreciate uh, I appreciate that as well. And, and, you know, I said, and I also appreciate something you referred to earlier, uh, Tim, and I know it's a, sort of a question too. And I, Lynn, Lynn's has been very helpful with this um, at our own synagogue, which is how we can continue to be more open and welcoming and accessible to folks. And what is it that we need to do 
as a synagogue, as a Jewish community, to, to be accessible to people. So, for example, for those who are visually impaired and blind, um, that uh, and so I always appreciate hearing you know feedback and thoughts along that, so we can continue to um, be uh, sort of be open and welcoming and to to know what what the needs are and the expression. So I'm glad to have this relationship. I really appreciate it. One of the things that I really like what you say at at the uh, service is rise in body or in spirit as you're able. I know that you didn't come up with that, but I think that's fantastic. I never heard that in any other synagogue. Well, it's like those things that I, thank you. And I, yeah, it's like, for me, I'm always like, it's always a great learning experience. I've tried to really take on the, you know, the, it's like, I, um, cause I don't, can't anticipate it. So when that was something that was brought to my attention, like, oh, you know, it'd be really, it's more inclusive to say X to say this, you know, rise and body your spirit. I was like, Oh, you know, that's so, I so appreciate <laughs> people bringing that to me. So it's like, yes, that's something I, I might not have thought of or when I, it's happened on a number of occasions and in all ways. And, you know, I think that like Tim was saying earlier about the use of zoom for accessibility. And that's, you know, I think one thing we've learned over the course of the pandemic is like, well, that's something we actually could have been doing prior to the pandemic, but you know, we, it took the pandemic to get us there. And it's sort of, um, you know, it was a little embarrassing or shameful that we we haven't thought about some of those things prior. Um, but to be able to ab- adopt the uh, the notion of continuously uh, learning, you know, and that's been great. Like Lynn brought it, to, you know, we taught us brought us the attention the bra- the Braille prayer books, which we didn't have before. We had large print prayer books, but not Braille, so that was so appreciated. All that as well. So. Well, again, I I I really uh, first of all, we have the best. I know Diane will argue with me. We have the best group of people in my group. They are the nicest. They're the the, the most accommodating. They're just a fantastic group of people in my call. I love them all. Um, and I just am so glad that you were with us today. And um, I just hope maybe you can come back sometime and talk about other things. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to think about is maybe we should have a call not on, you know, the Russia China is on this uh, September 25th. Maybe I should have a call, and we should do our own little, not exactly a service, but you know, as lay people, but something for Russia Shana on maybe that Friday night. I don't know, or Thursday night, or whatever it is. We'll think of a day because I know it's coming up, and and the call's only been going on since November. So mm. I really appreciate everybody for for coming. I really appreciate Tim. Thank you so much for being my co-facilitator. Thank you to uh, Diane for being our host and making sure people got their questions answered from the audience. And um, we have about three minutes. Is there any final things anybody wants to say? I only wanted to comment on um, what the rabbi was saying about the uh, accessibility thing. And that's so important. I mean, to me, it was important that I don't want to go to a synagogue and have to fight for rights, right? right? <laughs> I, I want to go there just to be relaxed and be a member and get kind of, you know, spiritually fed. So um, when you make those um, steps, like getting a Braille uh, prayer book and things like that, those are just so huge to um, people in our community, right? That um, it's very welcoming. It's just, a, we breathe a sigh of relief. I know, I, I mean, I could speak for myself. I do. And um, yeah. 
So thank you. I want to thank you again for doing that, Rabbi. I also wanted to mention and hearken back to a discussion we've had on this group, being a minority with a minority within a minority. You were a minority in the Jewish community as blind people, <laughs> and we're a minority in the blind community as Jewish people. So um, it's it's why I started the group, because um, I felt that there were people who would resonate with, with, uh, with being Jewish no matter what. We have people who are... Um, you know, not culturally Jewish and, and uh, you know, not religious. And we have people who are more religious. So we have all sorts of people in the group. So it's it's just a, a great exp It's been, I've learned as much and I've gotten as much as out of, out of the group. And I thank the group for allowing me to do it because I really get a lot out of it too. Yeah, what a great thing that you, you know, again, like you, uh, with the technology, it's wonderful. You can bring Jews yeah. together <laughs> from wherever you are, but you have this, I appreciate your framing of being a minority within a minority with when it comes to the blind community. So being able to uh, come together like this to start the Jewish hour and be on Zoom, it doesn't, regardless of geographic location, it's so powerful. It's so wonderful. Thank you, everybody. Um, Diane, I think you can close the room now.